All right, so verse 27, here we go. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Stop. I know you're like, really? Dude's going to read one verse and stop to chat? Yeah, prophets. Uh, let's talk about prophets for a moment. Uh, when I think of an Old Testament prophet, well, that's one picture. And then a newer, like, modern-day prophet, it's kind of like, I'm, I'm pretty chummy with the Old Testament guys. They seem awesome. The newer kind of prophets, how many of you feel uncomfortable? If I was to stand up here and be like, I, I don't know how a prophet stands. Maybe it's, I am a prophet. How would that make you feel? It'd probably be a mixed bag. Some of you are like, all right, I'm cool. I'm cool with that. Give me those lotto numbers, bro. Tell me, tell me those digits. I want to be able to uh, bring home a Powerball. You know, like, I don't know what would go through your head. But it's a different, it hits a little bit different. Now, an Old Testament prophet, we got tons of them throughout the, the Bible. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, Daniel, Nahum, Obadiah, Zechariah, Zephaniah, lots of, uh, lots of prophets. But basically, the job of a prophet, a capital P office of a prophet, was to declare the counsel of God. Hey, thus saith the Lord. This is what God wants you to do. And a prophet would use the past, the present, or the future to endorse this. Typically, they're calling people to repentance. So they may say, hey, you have done this in the past. You need to repent and worship God instead. Or it may be, hey, presently you are guilty of this crime. You need to repent and do uh, differently. Or it could be, hey, God declares this is what's going to happen in the future. Or this will happen if you don't change course and correct. And so a prophet, maybe they're speaking future, maybe they're speaking past, maybe they're speaking present, uh, but they're declaring the will of God to the people to lead them to the heart of God into right standing relationship. So that's the office of prophet. Uh, there's also, in our day, a gift of prophecy. And so where you think these guys, uh, the prophets of the Old Testament, that's kind of like a capital P, that's your, the office. There's lowercase p, that's, that's like a gift of prophecy. Same kind of idea, but um, it, it, it's not this big office. It's kind of like you could uh, have the gift of hospitality without working in the food and rest, you know, restaurant business, right? Uh, so uh, administration, though you're not an actual capital A administrator. And so there's a gift of prophecy. Here at Grace City, we define it uh, like so. Do we have this up here? The gift of prophecy is the divine strength or ability to communicate God's truth and heart in a way that calls people to right relationship with God. So somebody who is prophetically inclined, they're the guy who can immediately check out someone's life, what they've been doing, where they're doing now, or the pattern of behavior, mindset, heart set, and action that's leading them in trajectory. And somebody who has re really got more of this gift of prophecy will immediately be able to be like, hey man, you need to reject this. Immediate prophets don't mind telling you exactly what they think telling you exactly what they need to do. Uh, they know their Bibles, they know the counsel of God, and they're going to be able to call past, present, uh, and uh, future of, hey man, you're on a bad trajectory, you need to break contact from this, you need to uh, repent of this, and you need to worship God in a different way. And so somebody with a gift of prophecy, that's kind of how they're hanging out. Uh, we know that in the book of Ephesians, there's this gift of prophecy, it's among a bunch of others. Let's back up one slide. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So there's a whole bunch of spiritual gifts going out. It's to be able to uh, be one body with many different parts. So everybody has different abilities and different skills and everything that we can bring to bear uh, together. 
Uh, so, but we still have some work to do with this uh, prophecy because today, it's, it's one thing to talk about prophecy like back then. I doubt many people in this room have a big problem with that. But the moment we're caught up to now, it's kind of like, bro, I don't know. I don't know how to take this. huh? Some of you are uncomfortable for me, that secondhand embarrassment. You'll get through it. You'll get through it. I'm good. Uh, so there's two basic camps. One is what we call the cessationist camp. They believe that the spiritual gifts, the signs gifts, things like healing and prophecy, those were here and now they're gone and no longer active in the world or in the church. Cessationists. Then over here in the other camp is the hyper charismatic camp. Uh, So on one hand, Christians today, no prophets, no prophecy, no signs, gifts at all. And the other thing, man, if you've ever, who's ever been in, in a church or around some like, not charismatics, I mean like hyper charismatic. Anybody? It, it, it's very interesting, right? They're waving banners and they're speaking in crazy languages and then they'll just fall out and go into giggle fits. And then you see some of these televangelist guys and it's like they got the power and they do this and this whole crowd of people are like, ah, and then they fall out in the spirit and it's like crazy. Even if I wasn't a Christian, I would want to go just to be like, I have no idea what's happening. This is crazy. And so you have both of these two camps, right? Cessationist hyper-charismatic. And these will serve kind of as our bookends as we lean into prophets right now because, hey, the text is talking about prophets, so we're going to talk about prophets today. Uh, so I want you to check out in 1 Thessalonians 5.11. It says, do not quench the Spirit. As in, the hey, the Spirit of God wants to do miraculous and amazing things in us, doesn't he? Absolutely, but when we have very little faith and we have already decided that God cannot do something amazing in our lives, That shriveled up faith does not beckon the Holy Spirit to do a mighty work? Of course not. And so in doing so, when our faith is little, the Holy Spirit goes and finds someone else's faith who is big. And it's through other people who believe God still has the strength to act here and now that God brings in amazing, awesome things, right? So the Bible is saying, hey, don't quench the Spirit. God The creator of the cosmos is still able to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And if you had the faith to believe God might bring miraculous change in your lives, maybe he would. And if you believe he wouldn't, that's quenching the spirit. Then then so be it, like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, Do not utterly reject prophecies. Now, here is a direct rebuke to the cessationist camp. The Bible here is saying, do not utterly reject prophecies. That means when the cessationist is confronted with someone who says, of like, hey, I've got a word from the Lord. The cessationist is say, uh, cannot say, that's impossible. The Lord does not speak through his people anymore. He did in the first century. He did in the Bible. But you cannot say the Lord spoke through you in this way. Prophecies are gone, right? So he said, do not utterly reject prophecies. So right now, the hyper-charismatic camp over here is like, yeah, John, get them. Get them. Tell the cessationists. I'm like, whoa, buckle up, charismatics, because here is something for you. Hey, don't reject the prophecies on its face. God can still do whatever he wants. Do you agree? If you don't, keep it to yourself, because I'm building an argument here. Uh, (laughs) Don't reject prophecies, but examine everything. 
So when hyper-charismatics come up to me and says, hey, man, I have a word from the Lord. You should give me a million bucks, take on a harem of wives, and move to Utah. I get to be like, bro, let me test this. Because I don't think the Lord's spoken to you, bro. (laughs) I don't think that's what happened. So we've got the Bible, and it's just chalk-filled with our ability to be able to test what somebody says. I can compare what somebody says to the Scripture, and guess what? If it contradicts, I can tell you, hey, pound sand, man, the Lord didn't tell you jack to tell me. I do not believe that that is a prophecy from the Lord. Now, it's one thing when I've got this straw man argument where I do that, you might actually want to be a little nicer to your friend. Not if they try to embezzle a million bucks. Actually, I'm mad again. How dare him, you know, in this hypothetical. Now I'm getting all razzed up, you know. Anyway, uh, I get to test this. I get to go to the Lord in prayer. I get to seek wise counsel. I get to compare this to the Word of God. What I won't do is have somebody try to over-spiritualize, give me something. No, like I get to test everything. And in fact, I'm supposed to test everything. Test, examine everything. Hold firmly to that which is good. Pretty cool. So prophecy, don't reject, but test. That's where we land. And that's where we land with whatever else. Somebody says, hey, I have this miraculous thing that happened. I'm like, great. I'm not quenching the spirit, and I'm not immediately rejecting. Like, I have a, I have a, a friend, uh, a dear friend, Ron, and he was a missionary with me, uh, Central America. Uh, but before I was linked up with him, uh, he was engaged in a mission. He had a friend that spoke zero Spanish, no Spanish. And somewhere on that trip, he watched his friend get Spanish, the whole language. And he watched him day after day minister and evangelize in perfect Spanish. Now, Ron spoke Spanish fluently, so he was able to actually observe this. Now, I don't know Ron's friend, but I know Ron, and I know Ron is a trustworthy man, and he's also a reasonable man. He's a retired businessman turned uh, missionary. Uh, He was saying, and I, I, I trust him. I trust him. Uh, And so I'm confronted with this story. I'm kind of like, well, the cessationist in me wants to be like, bro, that, no, I don't think so. There must be some explanation. Uh, The hyper charismatic is like, yeah, you bet you did. Woo, awesome. Uh, But what I'm called to do is, hey, man, don't immediately reject that God is incapable. The author of language is actually still capable of helping you get a language. I wish he would just matrix Rosetta Stone in some stuff for me. I I am voting for that. God can do it. Don't utterly reject stuff. Hey, but test everything, right? And so, uh, personally, from my point, I really think my buddy is telling the truth. He was there. He should know. Uh, Dude was an honest guy. I think that happened. I think a miracle happened on that mission field. I've heard about all kinds of reports of people being healed and crazy stuff. Uh, So anyway, when we're regarding prophecy, I want us to understand this as well. Now, it's hard to, right? Because, man, I have seen so many false prophecies, haven't you? It's been so abused, it's almost easier for me to just rush over to the cessationist camp and be like, bro, I've seen too much crazy, and I don't know what y'all are doing, but no thanks. But then Thessalonians is staring at me. All right, let's look at some, uh, some false prophecy here. In 1835, there was a man 
named Joseph Smith who prophesied that Christ would return in the year 1891. Uh, That means 56 years later. Now, throughout his life, he would echo this, and he would use kind of cryptic language, you know, kind of like when you call a fortune teller, and it tells you, you will meet somebody someday. And then it happens, it's like, oh my God, you know, like that kind of cryptic language. Uh, But he'd say this multiple times uh, throughout his life. Uh, And then Christ did not return in 1891. Uh, This uh, this would be the founder of Mormonism. This is a different religion than Christianity. Though it claims to be the same, uh, it is not. Uh, Here's something within Christianity. There was a Baptist preacher by the name of William Miller. Uh, Miller lived during the time of the Second Great Awakening. So a, a revival evangelism was sweeping uh, the Globe, really amazing, amazing movement to study in church history. Uh, he was a Baptist preacher, got caught up in the Second awakening, awakening. He was studying the book of Daniel, and he surmised from studying the book that based on his calculations from Daniel 8 and 9, that the second advent of Christ, that's the second coming, the return of Christ would happen in the year of 1844. This was not just a local congregation. This wasn't just a tiny Baptist congregation. This spread everywhere. Other churches, communities, other other cities, and it spread like wildfire. And people believed it so emphatically as this interpretation gone prophecy that people were literally getting rid of all their possessions, getting white robes so that the day clicked by, they were ready to ascend into heaven in robes. This would become known in history as the great disappointment. People were so upset when the second coming didn't actually happen on this exact day uh, that, that there was violence in the streets. The newspapers were mocking the Millerites openly. They were being teased in the streets about this. So this was a, this was a bigger movement. And so historically, it's called the great disappointment. Now, the, mover, uh, the movement still continued. More predictions would be made about when the end would come and recalculations would come. Uh, His followers would ultimately become what is known today as Seventh-day Adventists. We have a ton of them in this area, but he would be an important part of Seventh-day Adventism, which for a long time made a practice of predicting when the second coming of Christ would be. And now they've wised up and they know what we know, which is nothing. I don't know when he's coming, be ready. So they're not doing it any better with me. Uh, Bible says, no one knows the day or hour, be ready. That's what we're given. That's what I'm rolling with. Uh, so when anyone has a prophecy when Jesus is coming back, don't believe them. They're going to be wrong like so many others uh, have been, including uh, the Seventh-day Adventist and the Baptist. So that's Inside Christianity, different Protestant denominations. Uh, wrong, wrong, wrong. Now, by the way, they had a different reinterpretation, to be fair. They uh, say, well, he didn't come back, but what happened was, is on that day, there began like this heavenly purging kind of thing. And so they interpreted it as like something big was happening in heaven that you didn't see. Uh, and I'm like, all right, yeah, 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 whatever. I got gotcha, you, cool. Uh, so it's not just the world of religions that are doing prophecy. Today, in our age, we have false prophecies and predictions all over the place. So let's go to, uh, let's have some fun with that, because uh, immediately, like, the science community could be tuning in and watching this on online and be like, you dumb, idiot, religious people. All this superstition, I'm like, bro, really? 
the religious community has this thing called a, we call it a climate cult because it looks like a cult of people who are deeply engaged in climate. This springs from something that's actually, it, it manifests, it pretends to be something hyper-scientific, but it's something that I really believe rises up from something more new age and occult. Uh, they're, they're spinning climate change, whatever, is, uh, on all the science. You visit their home libraries, and it's all going to be like crystals and tarot cards and weird stuff, energies and spheres. Uh, so anyway, it uh, comes out that I, we were just at uh, a retail store. I took a picture on my phone because at this, uh, this retail store, it's like Five Below. You all know that store, Five Below? You can get stuff Five Below. Now with inflation, it like you can't you can't get five dollars for five dollars anymore. You can't do anything for five bucks. But anyway, th- uh, there was this book table, and I was amazed that everything was like astrology, crystals, tarot. This whole thing of like what I didn't find is any Bibles or anything Christian. It was all the occult, New Age magnets, energies, crystals, healing auras. It is incredible how popular this is, but this is a a rabbit trail. Let's jump in to some of the false predictions here. Newsweek in 1975 said, our cooling world will lead to a drastic decline in food production. So in 1975, it wasn't global warming, it was global cooling. They were seeing this and predicting there was going to be massive amounts of death because based on the trends, science, uh, our uh, atmosphere was cooling too much too fast. Though in 1989, the UN would put out a warning that entire nations would be wiped off the earth by the year 2000. That's, man, that's a busy 14 years. (laughs) We're freezing to death. We're burning to death. You're like, bro. All right, fantastic. Buckle up. In the year 2000, Britain's The Independent ran a piece where snowfalls are now just a thing of the past. They had a few different seasons where the winters were getting warmer and warmer. You weren't seeing as much snowfall. This morning, here in Georgia, in the heart of the dirty south, I walked down to my barn, wrapped up, because it was 10 degrees, and I used a hammer to break the water in my cow troughs. I, I think uh, this global warming sure is weird because it's freezing. <laughs> uh, in uh, the year 2000, here's a different one. Anybody remember Y2K? <laughs> and we laugh because we're all idiots. You were an idiot. Yep, me too. I unplugged my computer December 31st, 1999. I didn't believe it, but I totally played along too because we believed that Y2K was about to be apocalyptic. It was picked up in the news. There were stirrings over it everywhere. You heard about it at school. There was whispers about it at work. Financial markets would collapse. Jail cells, which were tied to computers, were just going to spring open to let all the convicts free. There would be packs of wild dogs. That was a thing. Everything was going to be plunged into chaos. And then January 1st and 2nd rolled around, and everyone's like, this is awkward. But it was a prophecy. It was a future prediction. Everyone's freaking out. But the news got it wrong. The scientists have got it wrong. Though they make prophecies and predictions, what does it come to? 
Here's a Mayan civilization. Anybody remember it was December, I think, 21st, 2012. The Mayans had made different predictions. And looking back, they were like, hey, some of this stuff came through, came true. And they predicted that the world was going to end December 21st, 2012. And I remember that as well. Of like People were like, no, I don't think so, but you think? <laughs> you think? You think it's all going to come crumbling? No, no, but maybe. <laughs> there was quite a buzz. Uh, I, I remember people were nervous. This was a, a source, of, um, source of confusion. If you can't read this, it says 2013. So fantastic, even the Mayans didn't see it coming. Uh, <laughs> my uncle sent an email to me, and it had like a, one of the early memes, and it said, Mayan, that was close. <laughs> I looked for it. I couldn't find it anywhere. But like, oh, such good jokes. Such good jokes. Uh, but uh, false prophecies. And you would think we wouldn't pay attention to a Mayan prediction on the end of the world when they couldn't see the Spanish coming. You know? So anyway, they didn't see that. Here's another fun prediction of uh, in the year, what was it, uh, 1912? The Titanic was about to have its maiden takeoff. There was uh, Vice President Philip Franklin of the White Star Line, which had produced the Titanic, that said, there is no danger that Titanic will sink. The boat is unsinkable. Now, in offline anecdotal conversation, it was reported, and all this stuff is alleged. Uh, there was a deckhand who was answering a passenger stepping on, and he says, yep, it's quite safe. God himself could not sink this ship. And uh, there it is, technology, engineering, science. They have prophecies, they have predictions about what they believe can and can't happen. And then lo and behold, they find out differently. By the way, just a quick tribute right here to uh, Jack Dawson. If y'all don't know Jack Dawson, one more, one more click. Um, Jack Dawson sacrificed himself. It's not funny. This is serious. Please... Please have some respect. Sacrificed himself for a uh, charming young aristocrat who refused to share a raft. And though he could have easily, you know, tipped her, he let her. Uh, he went out with his boots on. And so Jack Dawson, way to go, buddy. Uh, you did us proud. Uh, let's do one more. Um, Lord Kelvin, mathematician and physicist, believed flying machines were impossible. It never happened. We're actually doing pretty good with flying machines. So he'd be... <laughs> He'd be president of the Royal Society in 1895, a famed physician, mathematician. And what I'm doing is I'm gathering all these experts that are telling you what will happen for sure. And everyone believed them. The, the, the secular world has plenty of predictions of their own. Let's do someone a little bit more modern. Uh, Bill Gates in 2004 says spam will be solved in two years. That's why none of you have gotten any spam since 2006, right? I just advanced the shoot. All right. No. All right. No. Come on. Come on. Come on. Spam. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. That played better in my head. Next slide. <laughs> oh, false prophecies, false predictions. Um, uh, let's pick up on our text now. So we've had enough fun looking at. That, here we go, in verse 27. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. 
And one of them, named Agabus, a prophet, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. This is something historically verifiable. There was severe famines breaking out in the Roman world. As it says, all over the world, that would be interpreted uh, us now exegetically as the entire world, as the entire Roman world. Verse 29, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So here we have talked already about prophecy. In the first century, we had this capital P prophet, Agabus, who is saying, hey, church, who's growing and experiencing life change, disaster is coming. God is letting his people know what's coming so that they can be able to stand in the gap, be a blessing, and to have greater impact in the culture. And so God is tipping his church off that, hey, bad, bad times are coming. Uh, this, is, this hits really close to home as well, because whereas they're hearing a sign, a prophet from the Lord telling them, hey, really bad socioeconomic times are coming, prepare yourself and send relief to this other uh, place uh, into Judea. And I think now of like, man, I've got a lot of signs as well. I don't have a capital P prophet or an Agabus standing up, but everywhere I, I look, I see signs of society coming undone. How many of you are nervous? How many of you are fearful, if you were honest, that we're going toward times of famine? How many of you are nervous that the world is just breaking apart at the seams and you're not sure whether you can feed your family in the days to come? That's what everyone I talk to feels that intimately. And they're in, in their time, as God tips them off and they're able to read the writing on the wall and discern the times, they did something about it. Now, I remember in Genesis, Joseph was tipped off as well, just like Agabus was, that a famine was coming. And he received from God in a dream that uh, Egypt was going to have seven years of prosperity and then seven years of famine. That wouldn't just be Egypt, it'd be the entire world around them. And so, in doing so, during those seven years of plenty, they were putting back provisions so that it would last through the famine. And in this way, when the whole world experienced this famine, everyone came to Egypt because it was the only game in town that still had food. They had prepared, they had siloed, and then they were able to get huge amount of wealth through this. But also, the Jewish nation, which was, it was just a few dudes at that time, would have been wiped out if they had not been able to get those provisions. So it was God preparing to save his people through this foretelling. But I saw him preparing for this famine. I saw uh, in Joseph's time, I saw Agabus preparing his people for bad times ahead. I think right now, bad times are coming. And so I'm interested, if I was taking the Bible and saying, hey, um, how would I prepare for a famine? How would I prepare for bad times, Ed? Would that be a good use of our time here? Because we kind of talk about prophets, and now I'm talking about like, hey, how do you prepare for a famine? And somebody can be like, hey, that's a pretty sharp turn. I'm like, yeah, but everyone wants to talk about that. And God's wisdom is amazing because as you look at it, you're tempted to look at Bible as something old, something archaic. And the more you lean into it, I'm like, holy cow, that's kind of happening now. And here's God's method to figure out how to not only survive in these bad times, but actually to thrive. And I don't just mean thrive as if you're making bank. 
I mean having peace and joy and love for others, as well as being able to feed yourself and give generously. And so that's God's plan. And so I wanted to use the rest of my time, which isn't great, on talking about how to prepare for a famine the biblical way. Uh, So here we go. This should be incredibly practical Uh, First thing is no debt. Later, we'll talk about money in future sermons uh, and how we can be good stewards, but this will be more of a crash course that I think is going to be very helpful. I didn't really feel very strongly about this first one until I was already a man and I was already in debt. And so some of you are like already feeling like, bro, I'm in debt. What do you mean no debt? I'm in debt. That's kind of like the American way. I'm like, yes, I know, but we'll talk about that. Check it out. Uh, Let's look at some statistics first. This is from Dave Ramsey. Uh, This is average American debt per household is 158 grand. Uh, Credit card debt average is 14 grand per household. Student loans, $58,000. Auto loans, $31,000 per household. Mortgage loans, $202,000 per household. And then other, and I don't know whether Ramsey just didn't want to do the math or there was too many, uh, too many things to be able to factor in there so that you couldn't actually get a numerical response. But as you look at this, I'm like, man, we are wildly in debt as a nation, aren't we? Now, here's the problem with being in debt. Bible says in Proverbs 22, 7, that the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of is the slave of the lender. The wisest dude in the Bible, Solomon, is telling us, hey man, if you want to borrow money, you are going to be a slave to the person who keeps lending you money. Credit cards, auto loan, student loans. Amazing, if you ever take money from our federal government, you never get off the hook. There's something in the United States uh, called bankruptcy. You can declare bankruptcy. How many of you thought about the office, Michael Scott? Just now, and you're like, oh, I declare bankruptcy. Not that. You actually have to, like, file it. You can't just say it out loud and it be meaningful. But anyway, you can declare bi- bankruptcy, and that means whatever debt and obligations you had disappears. It's like a fresh start. Unless you took money from the federal government, like a student loan. That doesn't go away. That follows you. Beware. I know some folks who uh, took student loans, they've been out of college for 20 years. They're still paying on their student loans. One of them looked recently to figure out how much they still own. The number has almost not moved at all. They were shocked, horrified by that. They just assumed that it was way less, and really it hadn't. And so, holy cow, you you don't want to be enslaved to anyone, particularly the federal government. So beware, beware, beware. Do not be a slave of the lender. Bible calls us to be debt-free, and that's a tough thing. Uh, I recognize God is all about freedom. The Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It is for freedom you've been set free, Jesus tells us. Let's go one more scripture here. Romans 13, 8 says, Owe no one anything. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Don't, be, be, don't owe anyone money. One thing you do owe to each other is love to each other. You're supposed to love each other, take care of each other, uh, value each other, encourage one e- another, serve one another, help e- one another. But God, financially, God wants us free, not enslaved to the kings of the earth. So number one, don't be in debt. Number two, 
Make more, spend less. Make more, spend less. There's a poverty mentality that kind of circulates the church. Uh, and the idea is, is, yeah, it'd be real sinful to make money. This is not, this is certainly not biblical teaching. Now, they're certainly warning against the love of money. Bible doesn't say the, root, the love of money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not, money is bad. Money is neutral. You can feed, widow, you can feed orphans in Calcutta with money, or you can do terrible things with money. You can make it an idol. You can make it your God, and it will destroy you. And so there's so many warnings against the rich as well. But I mean, if money to you, you're a revolving door, and it comes in one door, you're blessed, you take care of your family or your immediate needs, and then you're blessing other people, God sees that, He sees your stewardship, He sees your generosity, your love and care for people, and then He funnels more and more and more, and then you're blessed to be a blessing, and God uses money to bless people. So I want to immediately dispel the idea that money equals bad. That's not true. Typically, because people are bad, we're made worse by money. Very few people are actually good at managing money in a godly way. And when God finds someone good with money, he gives them more and more and more. There's a story in the Bible, uh, the parable of the talents, uh, where Jesus tells somebody of a servant who is given one talent. Now, I'm not sure exactly how much this is. Let's call it a million bucks. It was a large amount of money. So let's just say it's a million bucks. Another servant got five million bucks, and another one still 10 million bucks. Then he went away on a journey, and he's like, hey, manage this well. Then he comes back, and he found the guy who had 10 million bucks, increased profit, he invested it wisely, and he made a lot. Five million, he didn't do quite as well with his portfolio return as the $10 million guy. And here, the $1 million guy, instead of investing or putting that money to work to gain interest, he instead just hit it. He buried it. And so when he came back, this servant had done nothing to increase his master's money. And so in the parable, Jesus says, what should be done? I'll take everything from the one million dollar guy and give it to the one who managed well. So it is with us. You're given a job, house, an income. How well are you managing that? Do we hoard it all? Are we... Uh, blessed to be a blessing, which one of these servants are you, right? And so uh, there's also another uh, story that Jesus tells us about the shrewd manager. And he points out uh, that we should be as shrewd as serpents, but as innocent as doves. What's the admonition in both of these parables is, hey, make more money, that's good. And also I see, hey, spend less. Check out Acts 2.42. We had done this earlier. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and all came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. We can stop there. Uh, so what they see is like, okay, they, they had a new mission. Once they saw what God was doing, had transformed lives, and they saw like, ah, it's not about making as much money as you can, driving the coolest car and having the best house. It's Jesus has a mission to rescue souls. And while the world around us, idolatry goes, idolatrily, how do you say that? 
idolatry. Maybe if I just mumble through it. As the world goes through making an idol of all the stuff, we recognize behind the veil what you can't see is souls hanging the balance. And Jesus has a mission of like, hey, go and make disciples of all nations. There's people who are thinking about material and they, they're sacrificing their soul, working day in and day out for something that's going to be burned up and lost utterly. You can't take a single dime with you. I'm thinking of a great missionary in the 1900s, Jim Elliott. He was martyred by Indians he was taking the gospel to. They'd never heard it before. And on this same subject, speaking about money, he said he is no fool who trades what he can't keep, money and possessions, to gain something you cannot lose. And so to Jim Elliott and to these folks in Acts chapter 2, the idea was I'm going to use money, which I can't keep. You can't take any of it with you, which is, that's okay. There are some guns I would like to take. I got a bear at 50, and she's beautiful. And I think if, baby, if we had a, a wider, no, hear me out. You're shaking your head no, but I'd like you to be open to this. If the wider casket, we could kind of, and we could just kind of fold me over, and she could be there. The gun, no. All right, so you can't take any of it with you. <laughs> some, of you some of you gun guys are like, yeah, brother, <laughs> that's awesome. Can't take any of it with you, but you can trade it here on this earth to reap heavenly reward uh, for you. So we want to give generously. This funds Jesus' mission. Uh, we get souls. Also, if you're not giving generously like they were in Acts chapter 2, uh, you create an idol out of money. You got to think of money like a hot potato. You know, if you hold on that too long, you get burned, and that's the temptation. And so if you want to be a good manager of it, we want to receive, manage well, and then be immediately generous. In this way, you can have money without money having you. The trick is to not love money. You cannot possibly keep yourself from loving money if you're not giving it away regularly. The only way to kill that God of loving money is to give it away. That's it. Otherwise, you are making an idol out of it. Now, someone would say, well, I don't have much. I'm like, well, that just means your, your God of money is not large, but it's still a little idol, right? The only way to kill that God of greed is to give it away with generosity. Uh, so uh, they're giving generously. Um, uh, the fourth thing, no debt, make more, spend less. This is Famine Prep 101. Give generously. And the fourth thing, uh, as all of them are modeling here, is manage your surplus. Uh, in this, this means, hey, you should be able to live within your means. We are making more, spending less. We have a surplus, and now famine or awful things happen. We, the church, have something to be able to help our neighbors with, our friends with, our family with. It's something that loving protectors do. Uh, dads, you're called to be a protector provider. We need to be able to provide. It's the loving thing for us to do. Protection, that's a loving thing for us to do. And so we want to be able to have a surplus. The uh, Bible says in Proverbs 13, verse 22, that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, which is only possible if he did pretty well in work and he made a surplus. Got it? A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. I'm like, oh, he went to work and he earned. 
and he didn't live up to his means, keeping up with the Joneses. Let the Joneses win. They want the biggest, most beautiful everything, and they are leveraged in debt to the absolute hill, and you have to make a decision when it comes to money, would you like to live counter-biblically or counter-culturally? You have to choose. Do you want to live according to the Bible regarding finances and money, or do you want to live according to culture? Laden with debt, buying the newest, greatest, whatever. Uh, Very good. Uh, I need to wrap up. I'm already over time. Let me give you a few takeaways. Uh, Just like Agabus had a gift to offer the church, you also have gifts to offer the church. You have background, you have experiences, you have skills, you have gifts. Some of you haven't really tapped into what that is, but I am seeing some of you guys already jump forward and serve. Our band was up here rocking out. Wasn't that fun, that last song? Can we give the band a round of applause, by the way? Just, ugh. So much fun, but skills and abilities. And I wanted to encourage you guys. Some of y'all are already serving and giving generously. And I just wanted to give you a big fist pump. They're like, way to go, guys. That is awesome. I'd love it if all of us leaned in uh, and shared our gifts, which we have to offer. Uh, Another uh, takeaway, hey, don't discount the uh, miraculous. Some of you uh, have got a lid on God in your life. And your faithlessness is keeping him from giving you those heart's desires for those breakthroughs. You have already decided the Lord cannot, and so you don't even ask. And if you do ask, you don't believe he'll come through. It's called quenching the Holy Spirit. Let's be bold in asking our Father what we need and trust that dads give good gifts, that he loves you, and that he's going to help you that he's going to help provide for uh, his kids. Uh, Another thing, don't ignore signs of disaster and remember that love prepares uh, and makes provision. Uh, Finally, uh, and I'm closing here, um, I want to call you again to counter-biblical or counter-cultural. We have all kinds of signals out there in culture, and I think uh, almost... I feel like sometimes when I'm tuning in to whatever's going on out there in the media or Hollywood or social media land, which is just mostly all toxic, uh, if you just saw what's going on in culture and you did the opposite, you'd probably land well. It's like, what's the Bible say about that? Whatever the culture's doing, it says the opposite. That's not true, but it's nearly true. And so today, what I'd like you to do is walk out of this message trying to identify places that you've been faithless. Uh, I'd like you to identify places where you've been living in a cultural model rather than a biblical model. Some of this stuff's hard. If like debt, if like, hey, it may take you years. It's not like you can snap your fingers to get out of the hole that you've dug in. Baby, I remember us just being just buried in debt struggling. I remember that so keenly. And we had to make a plan that took us years to climb out of. Uh, And you don't get to just snap your fingers and immediately get uh, through to all this. Uh, But I'm, I'm saying there's a biblical model, and it's our goal to be able to press into that, to ignore the cultural excess and consumption, to ignore where culture would make uh, possessions, money, women, status symbol, careers, that they would make that, God, uh, that their God, and instead we'd serve the true God of heaven and earth and understand how we properly manage, how we can be generous and loving and kind and encouraging. 
So that is the message for today.